All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family and a unity that you've given to each one of us and as a collective through faith by grace. Father, we're so very grateful for your grace, your mercy, your love, and for steadfastly reminding us of these things day in and day out. May we be encouraged. May we never become familiar with the gifts that you give us. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that are ill, that you heal them and comfort them and bring them back to us as soon as possible, Father. Your will be done, of course. We also pray for those in this world, Father, that are still lost, that they be humbled before it's too late. Father, most of all, we are most grateful and thankful for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this one a precious time to rejoice in. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Lord is our confidence. I want to share with you something that I received from Larry, who's the uh, founder of the Good News Today. It's that publication, uh, that Christian publication. Some of you might see that at local um, restaurants or what have you. He also has a very uh, large following uh, online. But this is from Larry, uh, and this is in response to the latest blog, which is titled, What's the Message? we're sending. Um, and as I said in the blog, I wish uh, I had the time right now to write a book on this. I could easily write a book on what's the message we're sending. Not what comes out of our mouths necessarily, but what's the message we're sending. And I used a somewhat fictitious example of a young lady who grew up and was told she was beautiful her whole life and ended up in tragedy uh, because of the message that was sent that her self-worth should somehow be tied to something so superficial. But anyways, uh, this is a, a great Christian brother of ours, and he, this is, these are his words. So here it is. Great word, brother. I've always felt our preoccupation with outer beauty was troublesome in so many ways and have often found myself in the small minority of folks unwilling to jump on the beauty bandwagon. Early on in the founding of the paper, I was contacted by local Christians who wanted to start a Christian beauty pageant. Seeking advertorial space in the paper, even tempting me with board membership and judgeship over their events. I actually considered it for a while before I got serious with the Lord about it. Thankfully, I avoided that pitfall, but not without much derision from those involved. Unfortunately, a few of our volunteers had children involved that split ways with us over my decision not to help out in promoting their idea. It was eye-opening, to say the least. Your article, and he's referring to the blog, your article was a confirmation of my difficult decision and the first time I've ever seen the issue addressed in the kingdom. Thanks, brother, and keep up the great work. Signed, Larry. That's fantastic. I want you all to be encouraged by that, uh, that the truth is hardly ever popular anymore. That here's another instance of an individual who stood up for truth, stood up for what he was convicted to be true, um, and got derided for it. Uh, and there was even a, a fraction or a, uh, in his organization. So nonetheless, I just wanted you to know that, and that he's also going to publish the blog in an upcoming edition. And I didn't know this, but he has already published like two or three this year. Uh, we support the organization uh, here and there when we can. Um, so uh, keep that in prayer as well. Um, 
All right, we need to get back to our primary course of study. Here's the theme of this week up here on the board. Obedience of faith. There's a divine sequence that leads to blessings from God. I don't want you to become religious over this just because there's some kind of an order to things. Uh, the human flesh will attach itself uh, and make a religion out of it. I do not want that to happen in your soul. I just want you to understand what the truth of the matter is, that there's a divine sequence that leads to blessings from God. For example, uh, 2 John 6 and 1 John 5, 1 to 3. Go to 2 John verse 6 for starters. We'll kick off this way. Again, obedience is going to be on the table as it has been the last few weeks, but I also want you to focus on the divine sequence that leads to blessings. So 2 John, verse 6. <clears throat> 2 John 6 reads, And this is love, not some romance novel. I always get a kick out of what the world portrays as love nowadays. We have the Bible, which clearly states, And this is love really leaves little to the imagination that we walk according to his commandments, a.k.a., also known as obedience of faith. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And to the point on the board, that is what obedience of faith looks like. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. And you can visualize this in the sense that Walking implies moving from point A to point B, does it not? Ambulation, it, it implies moving from point A to point B, including every sequence of steps along the way. Fair enough? And so walking actually implies a sequence, hence the point on the board. Hence, or as we've studied so many times in the past, I want you to concentrate on this principle up here on the board. Obedience. This is uh, really a place to concentrate this morning. Obedience isn't just something we do. It becomes us. I think it's a lot easier in our own little religious practices to say, oh, can you see my laundry list? I've obeyed. You know, check, check, check. And that becomes obedience to us. That's shortchanging what the Bible has to say about the topic of obedience. Obedience is much bigger than that. I like to consider it as part of the sphere of God. Obedience isn't just something we do, it becomes us. That's a change of perspective for a lot of people, I think. It is the preeminent feature of our behavior in Christ. It establishes and confirms, even to ourselves, our abiding in the sphere of love. So it's a state of being, not a laundry list of to-dos. We're not to be religious about this. We're to come to a place where it becomes us, that obedience to us is who we are, not just a laundry list. We don't just check things off and say, see, I'm obedient. Obedience is something that becomes us. It's part of who we are. We, as the Bible says, abide in obedience. That's a very different prospect, is it not? It's you live in obedience and sometimes, due to the flesh, you fail versus the other way around, which is the religious way and say, I'm going to uh, live in failure and once in a while check off some boxes. That's a complete reversal. One is the way that Christ calls us to live as Christians, Christians, right? Christians versus religion. Religion says, live like hell, check off a few boxes, go to church on Sunday, you know, read a devotional behind your toilet, you know, whatever makes you feel good for that day, but go ahead and keep on living in sin and check off a few boxes. That's what religion looks like. Christ says, no, 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 I want all of you. I want all of you. I want you to be obedient. I want obedience to become you. So that's you. You identify with obedience of faith. 
it becomes you. It's who you are. And then, due to our flesh, we fail sometimes. So make sure you get that down pat, because that's what the Bible teaches. Again, 2 John, verse 6, this is love. And then he talks about obedience of faith. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. And again, that echoes back to our previous principle up here on the board, obedience of faith. That's what it looks like, that we walk in his commandments. Obedience, therefore, becomes uh, the same sphere, within the same sphere of love because he says, this is love. What? To obey, to walk in my commandments. So there is a divine sequence that establishes our, uh, our foundation or our grassroot level of living the spiritual life. There is a divine sequence that leads to blessings from God. When we abide in that sphere I just described, that leads to something. It leads to blessings from God. Not that religious version where you're checking off boxes. Not where you're playing games, where, you're, where obedience becomes you. Go to 1 John 5.1 for our second reference point. 1 John 5, verse 1. First John 5, 1 reads, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love uh, the children of God when we love God and what? Obey His commandments. In other words, unless you're obedient, you're not in the sphere of love. We've learned this a few months back now. Again, when we love God in what? Obey His commandments. For this is the love of God. In other words, what it means to abide in the sphere of love. How do we know we're abiding in the sphere of love? Well, it says it right here in 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God. What? Romance? No. Batting eyelashes? No. Long, warm hugs? No. None of that that we keep His commandments. That's obedience. I didn't say that. That's the Word of God. Unless you want to contest the Word of God, you have to accept that as truth. Because there it is in Holy Scripture, not once, but twice. And we could keep on going. That's the truth of the matter. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments, guess what? Are not burdensome. Consider the... Apostle of love's words here closely. John wrote this. We like to refer to him as the apostle of love because he wrote on the topic as much as anyone in the Bible. So consider his words closely. He's amplifying the point about obedience here. The same one that we're on ourselves this morning to quote that we keep his commandments. So obedience is in full view. Just using his own divine, efficient language, of course, to do so. But that's what he's talking about. He's talking about obedience. And he says, this is love. That obedience becomes us. And they're, they're never divorced from one another. If you want to experience God's love, then you have to obey. If you experience God's love then you are obedient. These two things are intrinsically bound. That's the whole point. They're intrinsically bound. Religion will say you can obey but not have love. Or even in some cases, like on the other side of the road, is licentiousness where you can supposedly love but never obey. Those are both perversions. The Word of God says... If you're going to love, you're going to obey. If you're going to obey, you have love. That's what the Word of God says. And that's our litmus test. So John points to obedience, that we keep His commandments. He also, in a roundabout way, establishes a type of litmus test that we can each take regarding our own obedience it's never enough just to be theologically accurate. 
the Holy Spirit never allows this congregation to get too far with doctrine without some kind of an examination. Amen? We ne he just doesn't allow it. And I love that about um, what he does through this ministry. He makes things very practical for us. And so this morning, again, we're being given a litmus test that we can examine ourselves against. What about my love? What about my obedience? Where do I sit in this thing? Am I closer to the religious fool or am I closer to Christ? Because Christ is our prototype, right? He was perfectly obedient and manifested perfect love. If we accept what the Spirit just gave us up here on the board, again, obedience isn't just something we do, it becomes us. It becomes us. It is the preeminent feature of our behavior in Christ. It establishes and confirms, even to ourselves, it confirms our abiding in the sphere of love. It's a state of being, not a laundry list of to-dos. If we accept this, and then consider John's words in 1 John 5, 3. You're still there, right? And we, we, So we accept this truth on the board, and then we read 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God. In other words, what it means to abide in the sphere of love. That we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Hmm, what's the litmus test? Then our litmus test is comprised of one simple check. How do we know if we're to self-examine the way we ought to daily, moment to moment even in some cases? What's the litmus test? Well, it's based on just 1 John 5, 3. We have one right before us. One little check. Is our, quote, brand of obedience? We all have some brand of obedience. None of us are perfect, but we all have some brand of let's call it, of obedience, uh, that being the one that we proclaim. Is our brand of obedience a burden to us or not? Because the Bible says, and His commandments are not burdensome. So if we're to claim that we're in the sphere of obedience and therefore the sphere of love, but then... His commandments are burdensome to us. What might we conclude? We might be lying to ourselves. We might be proclaiming something that's actually not true. And that's our litmus test. That's our litmus test. In other words, what say you of God's command to obey? Do you obey out of pure fear of being disciplined? You know, kind of like an adolescent would. Oh, man, mom and dad are going to find out about this one. Better not get caught. Better, better keep them satisfied. Better do a couple of, you know, religious checkboxes. See, mom, I did the trash. I did this. I didn't come home late. You know, but, but, you know, but their heart is bad. Do you obey out of pure fear of being disciplined? Or do you do it out of respect, love, and gratitude for the one who has saved you. Which personifies you? Do you do it out of fear of just being disciplined? Or do you do it out of respect, love, and gratitude for the one who has saved you? Remember, the Bible teaches us that motivation is everything. God sees the heart. Motivation is everything. Without the proper motivation, we end up with works that are like wood, hay, and straw, easily burned up at the judgment seat. So, this is our litmus test as per Holy Scripture up here on the board. The obedience litmus test. Is our obedience burdensome or not? A la 1 John 5.3. Our honest answer indicates whether we are riding or abiding. Riding means just along for the ride, playing religion. 
Are we riding or abiding? Is our obedience burdensome or not? When you think about obedience, when the topic of obedience comes up, you're like, oh, no, here comes the O word. Here's pastor on the O word again. I hate this topic. Is that you? I don't really like to obey because I always come at it from an adolescent perspective. I'm just looking for ways to satisfy God somehow minimally, like a religious person. Or is obedience, has obedience become me? Am I really abiding in that sphere? So am I riding, you know, or abiding? Two different things. And that's not a bad way to remember it. Am I riding or abiding right now? And that's the question we can ask ourselves, even right now as we gather in this church. Right now even, you might say, oh man, I've been kind of riding. The quiche was good. Had a couple extra donuts. You know, I feel good. Got a new shirt on, got some new pumps. Got my hair done. Right? I'm playing the part. I look good. That's called riding. That's called riding. Am I riding or abiding right now? Am I grateful that I have a place to go? Am I grateful that I have a pastor that's actually wholly intent on teaching the truth? Am I grateful that I can look to my left and to my right, although less so today, the left and to my right, and there's someone there that actually loves me because they also are grafted to Christ along with me. That's a brother or a sister with me. Am I grateful for those gifts? Am I riding or abiding? Same thing goes when we read our Bibles. Are we abiding in the moment for maximum sanctification, or are we simply riding out the time it takes to finish a chapter of reading? I'm not going to lie. I'm not perfect. There have been times I'm like, all right, Lord, I don't have, I use a Kindle when I read my Bible in the morning, but I'll have my coffee and my Kindle, and I'll read, and I'll be like, <sighs> and I'll get done, and I say, and I literally apologize to God for not being wholly present. And I say, well, sorry about that. Uh, wasn't all in in that moment. It happens. I was riding. My, I was distracted. It happens to the best of us. Not that I'm the best of us, but you know what I'm saying. It happens to the best of us, okay? <laughs> not many wise, not many noble. <laughs> so it can happen in any area of life, really, uh, including reading our Bibles. Abiding is holy. Riding is not. Abiding is holy. Riding is not. Peter wrote about this topic. Go to First Peter 1 14. 1 Peter 1 14. We have a type of mandate here. Obviously, whenever we have a mandate, it's laced with the idea or the concept of obedience. Peter starts off right away in verse 14. 1 Peter 1 14 sets the stage for us. 1 Peter 1 14. As what, children? Obedient. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Remember, obedience becomes us. It defines our behavior in Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Sounds like a command to me. Of course it is. Implies a divine standard as well to live up to. We call that the truth. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the mandate. You shall be holy. For I am holy. As obedient children, you shall be holy, for I am holy. On Wednesday, the Spirit had us read an entire chapter 
That was John 17, which is, of course, often referred to as Jesus' prayer to his Father for his bride, the church. And it's such a lovely display of his heart. So I encourage you all to read it often, lest you lose sight of it. But I want to do a highlight reel version this morning. Go to John 17, verse 3. John 17, verse 3. We have an instigating verse in here that we'll see in a moment, but the Spirit backed us out to read the entire chapter on Wednesday, which was fantastic. But here's a highlight reel. John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent This is eternal life. That, too, is also in that sphere that I alluded to earlier. The sphere of obedience, the sphere of love, the sphere of eternal life. Knowledge of God is in that sphere. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. How about verse 8? Jump forward to verse 8. Again, it's a highlight reel. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. How about verse 13? But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And then, of course, verse 17 is the instigating verse that brought us here in the first place. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. With all this encouragement from the pulpit over the past couple years especially, read your Bibles, read your Bibles, read your Bibles. Why? Because it's God's goal. We just saw the mandate in 1 Peter. Be holy because I am holy. You shall be holy because I am holy. Well, we're not holy at all, really, other than just being saved, positionally sanctified, but not experientially, not progressively. So when we're saved, we have a lot of work left to do. We call that sanctification. How does that work? In the truth. You have to have the Word of God. That's why you read your Bible. That's why it's been coming from the pulpit. Read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. Why? That's consistent with Jesus' heart on the topic. Verse 17 sanctify them in the truth. What do we call this? This is the word of truth. Read your Bible. You'll have the truth. That's how you're sanctified. Your word is truth. It says it right there. How about verse 25? O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me, may be in them and I in them. That's basically uh, the end result of the invitation to join him in that sphere of love. Our focal point when reading this incredible chapter has been on verse 17, where we've gleaned the following principle up here on the board. The word sanctifies us. God's good intention is that we be sanctified in truth. Remember, all sanctification means be made holy, set apart for God's purposes. That's the short order definition of sanctification. To be made holy, holy means to be put aside for God's purposes. That's all sanctification is. That's his good intention for his purposes. Can we technically be sanctified some other way? Yeah. If we're sanctified for Satan's purposes, we're we're made into more of his image. We move in that direction. That's not the kind of sanctification the Word of God speaks of, though. Sanctification means a sequence towards God's good intention. So God's good intention is that we be sanctified in truth. Hence, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. How are you going to be sanctified if you don't have the truth? 
if you never take in the Word of God? What is it that you think is sanctifying you? Oprah? Dr. Phil? A newspaper? What is it that you think is sanctifying you? Jesus Christ in verse 17, your word is truth. Sanctify them in that. Right? Yeah. That's what the Spirit's been saying, that we need the truth to be sanctified. God's good intention is that we be sanctified in truth. The efficacy or the effectiveness, the efficacy of the word is empowered by the Holy Spirit in other words, our sanctification is a function of the Word. And, of course, the Spirit is the power source behind our sanctification. Absence of this truth undermines the process of sanctification itself. In other words, you cannot be sanctified against the divine will of God unless you have the Word of God. It's the substance. It's the object. It's the thing we have integrity to, as we'll, if we get there this morning. It's the thing we have integrity to. It's the basis of our sanctification. Think of it in theological terms. I'm going to try to weave sort of a string of pearls together that we've been um, doing the labor, the ground labor on over the past few weeks. The Word is Christ. Christ is God. God is holy. Holiness is the end product of sanctification, a.k.a. to be made holy. Again, the Word is Christ. Christ is God. God is holy. Holiness is the end product of sanctification. So if we leapfrog from one end of that sequence to the other, remember how we started this morning. It's a divine sequence that leads to God's blessings. And there's no way to get around it. You can't supplant it. You can't circumvent it. There's one way, sounds like Jesus, right? I am the way and the truth and the life, right? There's only one way. If we leapfrog from one end of that sequence to the other, we can conclude the same thing that Jesus wrote, which was in John 17, 17. Sanctify them, move them from point A to point B in the truth. Your word is truth. We concluded on Wednesday that Jesus was praying for the same thing that Peter wrote about in 1 Peter 1.16. Are you still there? Did we move on yet? No. We're moved? Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> Be holy for I am holy, in other words. That was the mandate. But we concluded that Jesus was praying. When he said, sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth, that's essentially the same thing that Peter wrote about, to be made holy. That's what sanctification is by definition. He said, do this thing. You shall be made holy, for God is holy. And it starts with the word of God. And God the Holy Spirit empowers the entire process, which is why we can never take any credit for it whatsoever. As soon as you take credit for it, we're back into religion checking boxes again. But Jesus Christ said the same thing, basically, that Peter referenced. And that was an Old Testament reference, called back to the Old Testament. I am holy, therefore you be holy. You be sanctified. In what? The truth. Which is what? The Word of God. Again, the capstone statement from Jesus up here on the board, and I'm going quickly because these are all points of review. John 8, 31 to 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly disciples, my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, the truth will set you free. That's the leapfrog. If you abide in my word, you're set free. You see? We've just been ironing out over 45 parts now. We've just been ironing out the guts that happen in between. We've been looking at the sequence because we live a life, right? God, to God, this is a, he knows the beginning from the end. He sees it all, like a parade all at once, but we look through a window and the parade goes by. That's our life. We have to look at things in bite-wise chunks. We have to look at it as how does this sanctification happen? Because we can relate to it along the way. We can say, all right, this is supposed to happen 
It's a slow crawl sometimes. There's some things I need to learn. There's some things I need to have ejected out of my soul to make room for the truth. All these things. We have to learn about the guts. And that gives us confidence in the big picture. The leapfrog. But Jesus, God, they see things right from the beginning. If you abide my word, the truth will set you free. Hence the following principle from Wednesday on integrity to said truth and freedom. The secret to integrity and therefore freedom is abiding in the truth. The alternative is to abide in lies, which guarantees bondage. Which guarantees bondage. And I don't have time to go into this, but um, as a recap, we have to have integrity to something. If we're given the word of God, we have to have integrity to that thing. As the Spirit taught us over the past couple of weeks, people have integrity in all kinds of things, even lies. Guys flew into the trade centers with integrity to lies. You can have integrity to a lot of things. And so you have to have the substance of that integrity, and then you have to have the humility to remain in that integrity to that substance, and in our case, the truth. So the secret to integrity, therefore freedom, is abiding in the truth. The alternative is to abide in lies, which guarantees bondage. So at this point in our thinking, we have to ask what I think is an obvious question. Does this not sound really simple? I mean, you all have a Bible in front of you, right? You have, do you not have access to it, 24 by 7? Um, so we all have the ability to abide in the truth, presuming we're all saved here. We all have the ability to abide in the truth, right? You have your Bible, God the Holy Spirit. I don't know. Should I just close up shop right now? Seems pretty darn simple to me. What's the problem? Why do so many people seemingly live lies that guarantee bondage? Christians even. Well, how does that happen? If it's that simple, and the ultimate goal is to be set free, I mean, who doesn't want to have peace and contentment and happiness in their life and freedom? Who doesn't want those things? Anybody want to raise their hand and say they don't want those things? So if, if God says, I've given you the sequence, I've given you the wherewithal, the means, the faculties to even be able to understand these things, because unbelievers can't understand spiritually praised things, what's the problem? If, he, if God, by grace, has given us everything we need to be totally set free, regardless of circumstance, what's the problem? Why do even Christians fall into some trap where we're miserable? What is the problem? That's a good question. Because it seems so simple. Well, one of the most effective strategies our enemies uses against us is what I'll call, just for the sake of this message, compounded lies. And let me explain. One of the most effective strategies our enemies use against us is compounded lies. So, let me give you an example. If I tell you from the time you are born, see, just a little taught. If I tell you from the time you're born that all animals are extremely dangerous, and especially the ones you least expect to be, I, I lie to you, basically. But if I tell you this lie from day one, what happens when someone has a puppy? and says, hey, do you want to play with them? You say, no way. Nope. Too dangerous. Same goes with kittens or any other tame animal that God has given us to enjoy. This isn't the best example, not as good as the one we pondered on Wednesday regarding sex outside of marriage, but I hope you get the point. All I had to do was tell one lie. And then every time an instance came up, even though they varied, you responded the way or someone affected by a smaller lie. The small lie being that a puppy's 
dangerous or a kitten's dangerous or any other animal that might be tame and really given to us by God for our enjoyment is actually dangerous. All I had to do was tell one big lie. That's that same one. Oh, it's perfectly okay to have sex outside of marriage as long as you're in love. All I have to do is tell that one big lie. And all kinds of dysfunction happens in the lives of individuals. Regarding why people don't take advantage of the simple sequence that results in abiding in freedom. Why don't people do it? It seems so simple. We just talked about it. Take in the Word of God. Let the Spirit do His thing. Be filled with the Spirit. You get sanctified. Sanctification means freedom. Why don't people take advantage? Well, here's one good explanation. I just gave you an analogy to it up here on the board. Living in lies. That's the problem. When we live in lies, we're preoccupied. Our focus is not on the things that matter, not on the good things. Our minds get distracted to other things, unholy things, things that we've been lied to about, things that we persist in lies in. So here's the point. One big lie promotes a bunch of downstream little lies. One big lie promotes a bunch of downstream little lies. The result is living a life of lies, all of which rob a person's a person of God's blessings. Perfect example, sex outside of marriage. Perfect example. It's okay. Get with the times, Pastor Ed. The Bible needs to update its doctrines. Really? I'm supposed to compromise the Word of God so that you can live in sin. That's what you're asking of a man that's trying to function in integrity. Yes. It's not going to happen. Sex outside of marriage is not okay. It's that simple. How do I know that? That's my personal opinion? No. That is my personal opinion, but it's based on the Word of God. My opinion really shouldn't matter to you. The Word of God should matter to you. And the Word of God says it's what leads you to bondage. It doesn't lead to freedom. So what's the point? When we abide in certain big lies from the kingdom of darkness, we are relegating large chunks of our lives to bondage. As soon as we adopt a big lie, think of everything that precipitates from that big lie, all the little lies that precipitate from one big lie. A whole chunk of our life is now dominated by a bunch of little lies. And that's what preoccupies our time. And if all of this equates to bondage, and there's only 24 hours in a day, well, some big portion of your day, or your thinking, or your time, moment to moment, is dominated by bondage. It's that simple. And all I had to do was tell you one big lie. So I was thinking about this. <laughs> Here's a few, quote, big lies worth considering in your own soul, on your own time. And you probably could come up with, you know, five or six of your own. But these are the ones that I thought about. Um, and so consider these on your own. And even consider... This is equally as important. Consider how other people, you, you know, you ever look at somebody and you say, how in the world are they such idiots? Why do they keep doing that thing? We love to do that, right, because that's an area of strength of ours, right? The, the funniest thing about us, this is the worst thing. I've done it. You struggle with something for your entire life. You finally get delivered from it. And literally that day, you turn around and go, what the hell's wrong with them? Look at them. What's wrong with them? That day, all of a sudden, you become an expert and arrogant. You know, I'm the only one, me and Todd. That's it, Todd. I guess it's just us. We're the only jerks in the whole congregation. <laughs> Anyways, be gentle is what I'm saying. Be honest. 
Remember the log and the, the twig? The log in your eye called judgment, arrogance, haughty eyes? Everybody's struggling with something. Everybody's been lied to here. And because some of the lies we've been given from birth by our own parents are big, they precipitate all kinds of little lies. And in many cases, you have to think about um, addressing those little lies as just band-aids. Like, oh, let me put a little band-aid on that for you. Let me put a little band-aid on When you really need surgery, you really need that big lie to be extracted. And that's what we do when we study the Word of God. So anyways, here's a few big lies that I think are prevalent nowadays that promote slavery. So big lies that promote slavery to lots of little lies. These are the big ones that precipitate all kinds of little lies. Sex is okay as long as you're really, you know, in love. That is a humongous lie. And based on some recent conversations and some giggling here in this congregation from Wednesday, I guess love isn't even the, the barrier anymore. That's not the norm. I guess it's, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, as long as you can swipe right or left, I don't know which one it is, but that's all I hear about with certain dating apps. Swipe right or left. Nobody, everybody's like, I have no idea either. I'm not going to even look them in the eye. <laughs> right? As long as you can swipe in the right direction and two people swipe in the right, that's okay. Oh, my. Are you serious? That's what sex is? That was the gift from God? Swipe in a direction at the same time? That's a huge lie. Sex is okay as long as you're, you know, really in love. That leads to all kinds of bondage. How about lying is okay when used to remain unoffensive? Where is that in the Bible? Where does it ever say that you can lie to someone so that you're not offensive? The Bible talks about integrity. The truth is the truth. If you want the truth, here it is. I know I can present it. You know, you don't have to be tactless. But I have to present the truth. I can't, I'm not going to lie to you because the truth is offensive to you. That's a huge lie that precipitates all kinds of awfulness. The end always justifies the means. No, it doesn't. No, it does not. If I say to you, um, hey, listen, guys, um, I really want to expand the church. So I'm going to do something a little legal. It's a gray area. Right? But we're going to have a better church, and more people are going to come to Christ because I did this little illegal thing. But we won't talk about it. What do you think God says about that? God needs me to act illegally to increase the kingdom? No, no, no. There's nothing noble in that. The end does not justify the means. How about ecumenicalism? You know, uh, compromising biblical doctrines so that churches can get together, so that we can all just get along. That in the name of love, can we stop fighting? Can we just get together and you compromise a little bit, I'll compromise a little bit, and that, therefore it's okay because we did it in the name of love. That's garbage. That's a huge lie that has tainted many churches. And then judging, this is one of my favorites because God forbid you judge rightly. You can't even judge anymore. It's not PC. Don't judge me! You can't hold up any standard of measure whatsoever, even if it's the Word of God. You cannot hold it up in my presence because I find it offensive. Don't judge me. Only God can judge. That's a lie. That's a lie. How am I supposed to discern right from wrong? How am I supposed to... How about, how about if I didn't... What if I... I'm getting tongue... Because I get mad. It gets me so mad. Lies make me really angry. Because think about that. If, if I buy that lie, I can never even attempt to correct the situation. I could never protect you. It'd be like, all right, I see something, I go to pull out the rod, right, to whack a sheep. <clears throat> Excuse me, I don't know why I was so emphatic about that. 
right? Right? And I pull it out, and it's a wet noodle. You, 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 you maybe my, my power is now impotent. I have no power. I have no power to exercise what is a God-given right to protect you. Of course I have to judge. Of course, if you're a parent, you have to judge every single day. So don't ever listen to that garbage. Don't judge me. Anyways, those are some big lies. Maybe you can come up with some of your own. Uh, but those are some big ones that really just le leapt out at me. Is that a word, leapt or leaped? Anybody? Oh, Don, you're such a goody goody. <laughs> those are just five examples that I thought of while pacing around my office. Honestly, I could teach a long series and write multiple books uh, on that one slide. I really believe that. I could write books on what you see on the board. Suffice to say that now isn't the time, but nonetheless, you all have a lot of good food for thought. And as we think about all this stuff, um, especially the points on the board, I don't want you to become disheartened. Yeah, the truth sometimes stings, but I don't want, when I say you, I don't want your new creature the one you should identify with, to be disheartened by any of this. All of this should be encouraging, right? All the commands, they're not burdensome. As long as you abide in the truth, the truth sets you free. So I don't want your new creature to be disheartened by any of this. In fact, now's a good time to echo John's words from John, 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Remember that. You see, to, to the new creature, we get back to obedience now, to the new creature, obedience is a thing of beauty. Obedience is a thing of beauty. When, when the new creature looks at a, a, a slide like this and says, do I have any of this going on in my life? Does this depict my life? What's my behavior in Christ like, honestly? The new creature says, thank you. I want this stuff out of here as much as the next person. I want this out of here because it's a burden to me. It's holding me down. It's got me in bondage. I bought one of those lies or two or three or all five a long time ago, and I still struggle with them. The new creature, obedience, understanding this, obeying the commands to jettison them out of our lives, that's a thing of beauty. It's a privilege that brings us to freedom itself. It's good to know the truth. And that shouldn't be burdensome. However, to the human flesh, obedience is like fire. The very thought of it burns. As I've taught you in the past, it's not the new creature in you that struggles with so-called difficult messages. It's not. The new creature does not struggle with messages that you would deem difficult. The flesh does, though. The flesh does. Up here on the board to summarize that. The pain we feel under the weight of truth is the result of our flesh clinging for life to lies. The resistance, the pain... Uh, even the, the, technically speaking, the suffering that we go through to give up lies, that has nothing to do with the new creature. That's the flesh, white-knuckling. Doesn't want to open up that door, that, you know, the closet with all the bones in it, the skeleton. Doesn't want, it's holding on to the door from the inside, right? Don't open up this closet. This one I have reserved for me for Saturday nights when no one's looking. This is the one I got over here hidden in the corner that I play this game with. That, you know, every time it comes to that, that particular examination of self, we go, whoop, whoop. We keep that little one for ourselves. And the flesh is white-knuckling it. 
don't open this closet because there's a lot of skeletons in here. And I'm going to keep on living a lie that produces more and more regret and pain and bondage. But I'm going to keep it under control because I can do that. All that pain we feel, that's not the new creature. That's the flesh clinging to lies. I personally, and on behalf of our great shepherd, want to see your flesh annihilated. That's what I want. I want all of those doors in your souls to be flung open. I don't care if it rips the fingernails off of your flesh. Good. I don't care how painful it is. Good. Because if that's what gets you from point A to point B, I'm down with it, right? Not to be all hip. That's how I talk now. Down with it. Do the kids even do that anymore? Andrew, Andrew just say yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care if it's painful for you. Good. That's a good sign that it's cancerous. That's a good sign that it's no good. Get it out of there. And if you want to you deflect uh, and project on me your anger, and what ha fine, whatever. You want to hate on me for a little while? That's fine. I become your enemy for a while because I tell you the truth? That's fine. Go ahead, do it. Fine. But just do it. Just do it. I want your flesh to be annihilated. Why? Because there's freedom on the other side. One of the great encouragements I hold fast to whenever messages get super convicting is that I do know from the Bible that it's not your new creature that's growling at me. It's your flesh. When you have that um, tendency or that desire to lash out at someone who gives you the truth, um, I know that it's not the new creature. I know that it's your human flesh. And some of you can learn a lot about that in your own relationships. Remember that the next time you see someone lash out at you, recognize that it's probably their flesh. And be forgiving. And like Galatians 6.1 says, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Know that. Know the truth, because that's what sets you free. Did I not just describe freedom to you? Ten years ago, you'd be like, what did you say to me? And the hockey, the hockey gloves drop, and it's, right? Next thing you know, you're, nobody does that. Next thing you know, you're, I'm speaking figuratively. You're brawling, right? Now you're like, no, I get it. You're weak. I understand. You're in your flesh right now. Maybe you don't say that in the moment. You say that up here. Because that might that's like stoke. I don't know why Taylor's laughing because she must be speaking from that's like stoke in the fire. I know you're weak, honey. That might not work. Up here. Up here. Know it. You're free. Now someone else's flesh can't drag you into the pit. That's what freedom is. So I know from the Bible that any growling that's done when the truth is presented, it's from your flesh. My attitude towards your flesh is I hate it. I despise it. Holy. Not a little. Holy. I even despise it after the fact. Say you tell me some lewd joke and I'm over here laughing about it. Or you make some kind of comment. Like, say, on the, on the uh, coattails of, or in the spirit of the blog. Oh, my God. Put something on, woman. You need to go to the gym. Or, oh my, that, that guy is so dumb. <laughs> he really is dumb. The loser. Right? I hate it when I laugh with your flesh. I regret it the moment after it happens. I hate your flesh, okay? When I say I hate your flesh, I don't hate you because I identify you with the new creature. I love the new creature in you. That's what is the very image of Christ in you. But I hate your flesh, just like I hate my own. 
Again, my attitude towards your flesh is I hate it. Conversely, my attitude towards the new creature in you is the utmost respect, love, and desire to build you up. I gave you this on Wednesday, and I've got to pick a spot to close here. 1 Timothy 1.5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's just trickle out a little bit further. I'm not going to finish my notes, obviously. This is where we ended on Wednesday, protecting the flock. A pastor's job is never to appease the flesh. Never to appease the flesh. Rather, a pastor's job is to see the human flesh killed. Out. Out of there. 1 Timothy 1, 5, 4, 1 to 4, Romans 8, 9 to 13. Go quickly to Romans 8, 9, and then I'll pick a spot to close. A lot to think about this morning. The rest of your, and most of you have a long weekend, correct? Some of you have a long weekend. Everybody in the medical field is like, no. <laughs> Romans 8, 9. Again, it's not my job to appease your flesh. It's my job to see my good intention to see your flesh crushed. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus or Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if the spirit, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Up here on the board, on that topic from Paul in Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the of the body. If your flesh isn't being destroyed during a message, then something's either wrong with the message or you. There should be zero encouragement for the flesh during a sermon. Zero. That thing should be kicking and squirming and complaining and moaning and white knuckling and everything else. There should never be encouraged. One more passage? All right, let's go. 2 Timothy 4.1. Not that I was giving you an option. <laughs> 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Paul said to Timothy who was a pastor, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. In other words, on the weight of that, on the premise of all of that, I charge you in the presence of all of him. Preach the word. Be ready in season and, what does it say? Out of season, when it's popular and when it's not popular. Do what's right. Have integrity to the truth. That is your job. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time has come when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. And some of you have uh, uh, wanting their ears tickled. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, I want to go to church. I want to be preached at. I want my, I want my flesh to get something out of it, too. Because, you know, it's itching. My flesh is itching over here. It needs a, the flesh needs a little encouragement. The flesh, I, I need to find somebody who's willing to stroke my ego, who's willing to stroke my flesh and say, it's okay, you keep your little skeleton closet. We'll work on some other stuff. No. Those things might remain for a while. But if a, a pastor doing his job ever looks at them and says, hey, by the way, 
you got a big old skeleton closet over here. We'll get to that eventually. But I'm certainly not going to sit there and encourage it. But that's what happens. People seek out teachers that are willing to compromise the truth. And they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul says, be ready against that. Stand firm against all that garbage because that's where the bondage comes in. Like Paul and Timothy, you and I have found ourselves in a very unique, intimate relationship. And I'll give you this. I promise I'll close here just in a moment. Integrity between two hearts. I'm not waxing poetic. But this is biblical truth. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Proverbs 23.12, apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. So we're bound. We're in this thing together, Ephesians 4.11 and 12, right, for the equipping of the saints. We're in this thing together. Our hearts are, are basically Christ's. Our hearts are in Christ. We find each other at Christ. Is that fair to say? We're meeting this morning at the Word of God. You're not meeting Ed Collins. I could, that's not my goal. I want to meet you at the Word of Christ. Amen? You want to meet me at the Word of Christ. And whether or not that Word is popular to you today and me tomorrow and unpopular to you tomorrow and me today, doesn't matter. I just want to have integrity to the truth. I want you to share in that integrity to the truth. Because Jesus Christ himself said what? And the truth shall what? Set you free. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here this morning. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free. Thank you for always abiding in your promises of deliverance and of freedom. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned here this morning back to our homes where we can contemplate them and examine ourselves against them. And then, of course, out to a world that's just falling away from your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.